If you have ever struggled with fat loss, then this episode is most definitely for you. I'm joined today by Laura Schoenfeld, who is a registered dietitian and coach who has done so much work in the area of what healthy fat loss looks like and how it is so different from so much of what we hear about how we should lose weight. In fact, so many of the things that we hear about weight loss and how to do it and why to do it, while those principles might work, they're always short term and they're most of the time not what is healthiest for our bodies, especially if you're a woman. We dive deep into all of these issues today with Laura Schoenfeld, and I can't wait for you to hear it and to learn the truth about what healthy fat loss looks like. Let's dive in. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others, and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. So I'm here this morning with Laura Schoenfeld, and I cannot wait to have this conversation because Laura was one of the first people, actually, I think the first person that I found on the internet. I don't even remember what I was researching, but I came across an article of hers about how I might be under eating. And I was like, that is one of the most ridiculous sentiments that I probably have ever heard. But I read it because I was like, what if I am? What if I'm under eating? Because I was just so stuck in this in this terrible place of trying to starve myself to lose weight. And then I would eat everything in the world and it just wasn't working for years. So I found her article. I read it. I've joined a couple of her programs and it has been so helpful, just everything. So Laura, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I cannot wait to dive in. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And Laura is a registered dietitian. I didn't even say this, but she's a dietitian. She's a coach. She works with so many women who have experienced a lot of of issues, one of which, one of the bigger ones of which is um, when women have hormonal issues, lose their period and different things like that because of what we women sometimes do with our body to try and get it to look the way that we want it to look. And so she has just built a practice and has different online courses that she has created that are just so easy to go through and extremely helpful. And, um, and so that's just, I love, I love everything you do, Laura. I think it's great. The message that you have is amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, how did you get into what you do? What got you started in this? Oh, how much time do you have? Um, just kidding. <laughs> I It's been a kind of long journey. I'm just trying to think. I just turned 33 last week. And I think all of this really started probably when I was in high school as far as my interest is concerned. So at this point, it could have been close to a 20-year journey at this point. Um I, when I was growing up, my mom actually is a dietitian now. She wasn't a dietitian when I was in high school, but she became one when I was in college. And we grew up in a household that was always very focused on nutrition, especially from a real food approach. So we had a little bit of a different type of 
um, emphasis to nutrition than, you know, your typical like low fat 90s type of focus. Hmm. So um, when I was growing up, we were getting things like raw milk and full fat, like everything. And so I that's the environment that I was raised in. However, Hmm. I think this is a pretty common experience for a lot of women. But when I kind of started, I guess I must have been like 15, 16, when I started to kind of like develop um, as far as physically and, you know, just turning into a woman, I guess is the way you would describe it. And I started to gain weight and it wasn't anything unhealthy. Looking back on it, it was totally fine. Um, But it was something that created a lot of self-consciousness when I was younger. And I, there was a lot of girls, like I was an athlete, so I played sports and a lot of my teammates would make fun of my body and I just got really self-conscious about the way I looked. So I started dabbling with dieting when I was in high school and it was like the worst kind of dieting, um, kind of similar to what you were saying where it would be under eating for certain meals. Like I remember buying Slim Fast cans for lunch. Like I would bring a can of Slim Fast for lunch and it was probably what, like 200 calories or something. And I was like, there's my lunch for the day. And then other days I would be eating things like one of my favorite things in high school was ZD pizza, which was baked ZD on top of pizza. So clearly kind of a a big swing between hardly eating anything versus eating something that is, you know, very high calorie. And as you can imagine, I don't think my body tolerated that super well. And so, um, you know, I just dealt with a lot of physical symptoms, hormonal symptoms, energy symptoms, even as a, a high school student, but it was always focused on what does my body look like? And in college, I played volleyball on the collegiate team for a year. And when I was a freshman, lost about 30 pounds from my high school weight into freshman year. And all of a sudden, that was when my social life took off. I had my first boyfriend. I was in a sorority. Like There was a lot of things that changed that in my kind of naive 19-year-old brain, I attributed that to my body change. I was thinking, oh, mm-hmm. everybody likes me better because I'm more attractive now. So it kind of solidified that belief that my body was the most important thing about me. And it that was what sparked my interest in learning about nutrition and fitness and health and everything. But deep down, it was all about how do I make myself look a certain way. Mm. So after college, I went to grad school for nutrition. And um, during that program, had a lot of different philosophies. That's where I got exposed to paleo. Um, So I started to get really into like the paleo mindset, low carb, um, was very dogmatic in my thinking about it. And again, deep down was still about weight control at the end of the day. I did think it was a healthier way to eat. Ultimately, it ended um, ended up causing a lot of restriction and binge cycling, big surprise, right? So I would be super strict doing like whole 30 kind of eating. Um, but then I would be really hungry. So I'd end up eating like a whole bag full of nuts. Um, Mm -hmm. or if I ever let myself eat something that wasn't paleo, it would be, um, you know, just this total eat until the point I was feeling sick. So Mm -hmm. that kind of behavior, even though I was learning about nutrition and I was understanding like biochemistry and, you know, clinical nutrition and all the things that we learn in graduate school, I still had a disordered relationship with food because I was still so focused on my appearance as being like the most important thing when it came to my health. So I would say 
right after grad school, when I started my business was kind of when my health really hit rock bottom because I was exhausted. I was, you know, going back and forth between low carb and then like eating for, you know, emotional reasons, that kind of thing. And not only was I frustrated with it, but I also was working with a lot of clients that were having similar types of issues where they had done something like Whole30 or Paleo or low carb, some kind of diet change that they thought was going to make them feel better, but it ended up making them feel worse eventually. So I noticed that pattern in my clients and I noticed it in myself. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to get to a place where I I decided that something needed to change. And I started to um, really reevaluate my approach to health and why it was something I was so obsessive about when it came to my appearance. Um, I also became a Christian in 2012, which definitely changed my perspective on things pretty significantly. And that, you know, last almost eight years now of, of, um, changing my perspective of who I am and my purpose in life, all of that really radically changed my mindset around my body as well. Um, so I know that was kind of a long story, but basically just this whole experience of putting so much stock in my appearance and my weight and my body fat percentage and what I looked like, um, was really creating a lot of physical and mental health challenges that it took changing my focus and changing the reason why I was taking care of my body to really be able to make helpful choices that did support my health that also allowed me to have freedom and flexibility in my life and also support things like hormonal health, energy, you know, brain functioning, all the things that I originally thought I would benefit from, from doing those more restrictive diets. Um, so it's been a journey for me and it's something that I have worked with, um, gosh, I'm sure hundreds, I don't know if I've hit a thousand clients yet, but hundreds of clients over the last six plus years, just helping them figure out what works best for them and to be able to drop the dogmatic thinking around diets, whether that's, you know, like I said, the paleo whole 30 ancestral health kind of mindset, or it's just calorie restriction in general, which I feel like us women in, in the U S have gotten bombarded with for most of our lives. Mm-hmm. I didn't know all that. That's, I love that though, because it's coming from a place of you have dealt with this and you're helping others from what you have gone through when you were in. So when you were getting your, um, your, your, is it a master's? Is that what you in grad school with, with a dietitian? So what were they teaching you? Here's what you do with a client. And then were you doing that for yourself or were you, does is, is that question making sense? Like, were you doing the things that you were learning to do, or was it so hard for you to do that for yourself that you got stuck in this cycle? Um, to be fair, so I went to probably one of the best public health and dietetics programs in the country. Um, so they were very research oriented, very focused on evidence for mm-hmm. recommendations. Mm-hmm. There is a pretty significant lag in recommendations being created from research. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot that was being taught in my program that to this day, I still actually believe was incorrect. Now, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what I believed back then was also incorrect. So it's been one of those, it's been an interesting experience to kind of question not only my own um, beliefs, but also to question what I was being taught in the traditional dietetics program. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I don't know if I was really learning anything in that program that necessarily applied to me. Mm. Um, I think it helped me understand biochemistry better and understand physiology better. And 
um, for sure understand how to treat specific types of health conditions. But right. I, we didn't really learn a lot about women's health per se. Um, and unfortunately, there's just not a lot of research on women's health, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware that, right. um, you know, a lot of women's health is based on uh, clinical experience rather than there being a depth of research to say what women right. should be doing to take care of themselves. So right. I don't necessarily think I was learning anything in grad school that would have applied to my situation um, other than maybe some of the mindset stuff we learned because we did learn counseling techniques, but it's very difficult to counsel yourself, obviously. Yeah. So, um, so the counseling techniques I used with my clients, it, you know, it is something that when you're asking clients for, you know, information or to talk to them in a way that helps them see things differently, you do have to see things differently yourself. So a lot of my mm -hmm. journey has been influenced by my desire to be the best coach possible. And mm -hmm. when you want to be a great coach, you have to continuously be working on yourself and getting to a place where you are overcoming the things that are standing in your way. So I, I really think a lot of it really took off when I started working with people and seeing, seeing what these false beliefs or dogmatic beliefs or just overly restrictive beliefs were doing to people in real life. Cause it's very easy to say, here's what the recommendation is. But when you actually start implementing it, people are people are real humans. Like you can't just force people to do stuff and think that it's not going to necessarily have, um, consequences with mental health, spiritual health, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So would you, what percentage of your clients would you say are struggling or have struggled with being in some kind of unhealthy mindset? And that's where would you, and would you say that's where the issue stems from? Yes, I would say I'm trying to think if there's, I'm trying to think if I have any clients that don't have mindset challenges. Yeah. But, I mean, but that's everybody, right? I think because I also I do business coaching as well. And my business coaching clients have mindset blocks as well. So I don't, I don't actually think there's anybody out there that doesn't have mindset blocks. Because if they didn't, I mean, humans are capable of really amazing things in general. And are capable of figuring out problems. You know, there's, there's an insane amount of research available in any topic that you could possibly be interested in on the internet these days. And so I think one of the biggest challenges that women face in any area of their life that they're struggling is mindset blocks that are preventing them from taking action in a way that would allow them to see results. Because whether that's negative self-talk that affects their consistency with a plan or the plan itself is wrong and they have to address, um, you know, incorrect beliefs that they have about what they're doing and be able to change what they're believing about what's going to work for them. I, I feel like most people's problems come down to mindset, whether that's a physical health problem um, that has a solution that could be implemented or, you know, like you said, a, a, a self-image or um, uh, what's the word? I'm blanking on what word self-image is a correct word, but like just the way that you view yourself, the way that you view um, your ability to be successful, the way that you view your deservingness of being successful, all of that actually affects your ability to take action on the things that could bring you better health results. So I feel like I don't want to say a hundred percent because I don't, I don't ever love saying extremes like that, but I would say like 99% of my clients have some kind of major mindset block that is, affecting their ability to see the results they want to see. Mm -hmm. So you've already mentioned a couple of them, negative self-talk being one, 
you know, that dogmatic thinking of this is exactly what I have to do. Another one that you didn't say, but, and I feel like this would fit in, um, but it's that I can only eat, like I'm only supposed to eat X amount of calories. Would that be another? What are some of the ones, how would you group these? What do you think these mindsets are people get stuck in? Yeah, I would say they really would split into two different categories. One category is just false beliefs. Mm -hmm. So you believe something that's not actually true and that belief affects your behavior. Mm -hmm. And then there are beliefs about who you are or, you know, just things about yourself that it's not necessarily true or false. It's just, it's a subjective belief about something when it comes to yourself. So when I think about objective, incorrect beliefs, lower calorie intake is for sure one of them. So a lot of women believe that they should be focused on eating low calorie, reducing their calories. They should be aiming for 1200 calories a day, whatever the number is. And that's just actually scientifically incorrect. So if somebody has that belief and that's what their their behavior is centered around that belief, then changing the belief and understanding why that belief is incorrect is something that can drastically impact a person's health because then they're not focused on, let me cut calories all the time. They're focused on how do I get enough calories to fuel my body so I feel good. So, you know, my body is functioning optimally, that kind of thing. So there's there's objective beliefs that can be changed. And then there's the subjective beliefs. And that really comes down to more, like I said, identity, who you are, who you see yourself as, what you believe you deserve. Because, you know, I think you can't really necessarily say objectively somebody deserves or doesn't deserve something. But Mm -hmm. those are all just beliefs that are 100% under our control. Um, And so a lot of times those are going to affect behavior as well. Because if you don't believe you deserve to be healthy, you probably won't stick to a new diet or exercise plan very long, or um, you end up self-sabotaging or the minute you do something that's not aligned with the plan, you say, well, that just proves that I can't do this and I give up kind of thing. So I, I feel like the two categories both need to be addressed because if you believe something that's factually incorrect, then you're going to be doing things that are not helpful and not um, effective. And then if you believe something that's, subjectively just unhelpful, then changing those beliefs can help you be more successful. So those, and I deal with both of them when I work with clients because there is so much misinformation on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've learned a lot of stuff in the last 20, 30 years of, of life about what nutrition looks like, about what health looks like, fitness looks like, that kind of thing. There's lots of trends that influence our beliefs. And so we need to address any sort of, um, factually incorrect beliefs that are not actually going to work for the person. And then we do need to address those uh, subjective beliefs that'll affect the person's ability to be successful with implementation. Mm -hmm. So what about the end goal when you're working with clients that what are the end goals that you're encouraging them to think about? Is it a number on a scale or is it something different? So it's interesting when I work with a client that wants to lose weight, I always have them come up with a broader list of goals when it comes to health because people can get so wrapped up in weight loss or a number on a scale or a pant size or whatever that, that metric is that we're set, we're told is something that we should be pursuing that they don't pay attention to other aspects of their health. So they're not 
They're not looking at how do I feel on a daily basis? How are my hormones functioning? How's my gut functioning? Am I sleeping well? Do I feel good when I'm working out? Like these kind of things that can improve with changes or can possibly get negatively impacted if somebody's dieting too, um, too frequently or too strictly. And if you're not paying attention to those, then either you're going to harm your health or you're not actually going to see the full benefit of making the changes that you make with your diet and your exercise routine. And yeah, maybe you'll lose some weight, but eventually either you're going to hit your goal and then, you know, what are you working on then? Or if you don't reach that specific number goal, a lot of times that's what leads to people giving up is because they think I'm never going to reach that goal. And what's the point? I might as well not even do this anymore. And they weren't even paying attention to the other benefits of making their, their diet and lifestyle change. So I, I don't tell people what to necessarily, um, have goals for because everybody's different and everybody has different desires and different, um, and like physiology. So maybe one person has more of a hormone focus. Another person has uh, more of a gut health focus, but I just don't want people putting all their eggs in that one basket of, I have to lose weight and it has to be this number. And if I don't achieve this, then I'm a failure. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not anti-weight loss and I'm not even anti-scale measurements. Like if somebody wants to track their weight, that's totally fine, but it needs to be an unemotional tracking. It's just a data collection tool. And it also needs to be combined with the reason why you want to lose weight and how that's going to benefit your health and how that's going to ultimately benefit your life. Mm -hmm. That is so good. I remember it was about two years ago now that I was just really into this, like wanting to hit a certain number on the scale type thing. And so I ended up doing it. I lost more weight than, than I wanted to. But during that three month time frame, my health went from being pretty good um, to where I was stressed all the time, like shaky, panicky, anxiety through the roof on a day to day basis. I wasn't sleeping well. And none of this I was attributing to my weight loss at the time. All of it I was, you know, everything else happening in life. And it was also during that time, this wasn't the first time, but it was definitely during that time that I went the longest without having a period. So I was like a 60 or 75 days or something. And I was like, this, this probably isn't right. (laughs) You know, but again, I wasn't attributing it to the fact that I wasn't eating enough. And because I was trying to do like, I wasn't even eating until like six o'clock at night. And then I would eat all of my food at night and, and eat like maybe a thousand calories. And I did this for, I think, two to three months and it wreaked havoc on my body and I'm still recovering still. And so it was right a couple of months after that, where um, I started, that's when I found your article saying like, you might not be eating enough. Well, by that time, I had gotten back to where I felt like I was eating definitely a ton. But then the more I was reading into just your, your messaging and and your the way that you talk about it, 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 I was scared to believe it. Because I was like, it sounds too good to be true that it's okay for me to eat as like, as much as I feel like I need to eat each day. Isn't that sad? Well, I will say I'm glad that you were self-aware enough to notice the health 
problems that were coming up from that weight loss method because too late, but yeah, (laughs) well, but there's a lot of women out there that go years. Like I, I work with a lot of women with amenorrhea, specifically hypothalamic amenorrhea. I have a program called get your period back. And I, we've had over a hundred women go through that program at this point, probably more. I just, that's, I think we have close to a hundred in the Facebook group. And, um, some, so many of them have gone years without a period because they didn't necessarily realize that it was connected to their dieting behavior. So the fact that it only took you a couple months is actually great. I know that I'm sure if you could go back in time and kind of not do that whole process, then <laughs> you probably would have. But I think it's it's a good thing that you noticed so quickly that there was something wrong. Because honestly, there's a lot of women out there that they don't necessarily notice, or maybe they just don't care because having a period is a, a, a nuisance or a hassle. And they're like, oh, great. I don't need to have a period. Cool. No problem. So, um, So noticing it is really important. And, and unfortunately, a lot of women put their weight above their health. And the fact that you lost weight would have been something that some women would have said, well, at least I lost weight. doesn't matter if I have all these other health issues. Um, but I will say that, you know, the level of extremeness with dieting is something that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not eating in, nothing until six. Is that what you were saying? Just like, mm-hmm. I mean, that in and of itself, even if you were eating enough calories at the end of the day, that is a huge stressor on your body. Women's bodies especially are very um, sensitive to calorie deficits during the day in general. So when you're waking up in the morning, you're already in a little bit of a deficit. If you don't eat for hours, like if you're doing intermittent fasting, or if you exercise before eating, you're actually putting your body into a, a calorie deficit in the moment that is going to tell your hormones to potentially shut down to prevent ovulation so you can prevent pregnancy. So that's something that actually makes women a little bit different than men. Women are way more sensitive to calorie deficits across the day as opposed to calorie deficits in total. Um, So that's one thing to be aware of. And then the other thing to be aware of is all of these guidelines for calorie intake that are given to women most of the time are completely inaccurate as far as what women's calorie needs are. Yeah. 1200 calories a day will probably lead to weight loss in most women, but that doesn't mean 1200 calories a day is enough for maintenance. And even there's so many women out there that when I tell them that their maintenance needs are above 2000 calories, getting into that 2000 range is something that freaks them out. So mm-hmm. I don't exactly know where that belief came from. I'm sure it's kind of like a mix of all sorts of different influences, but most of the women I work with, especially if women are active, need somewhere in like the 22 to 2600 calorie range minimum. And if they're really active, they might need closer to 3000 plus calories per day. And a lot of times women just are shocked to hear that that's what their body mm-hmm. needs to function normally. Mm-hmm. Yes, because if you're doing any kind of tracking of your calories and you put in your measurements and everything, then what it will tell you is 16, 18 hundred calories a day. And so then, and that's the cycle I've, you know, for years I was in where if I was logging food or any, or tracking food, then if I went over that 1800 and got to 2000 or 2200, then I was like, I can't do this or, you know, or whatever, or I, you know, I need to stop listening to my body because my body is wrong. 
Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to need this many calories, not this many calories. And so then once you go over, or for me, that's when it would lead to that binging of like, well, might as well just eat everything the rest of the day. And then you feel terrible. And then the next day, wake up and you're like, I need to starve myself because I have to make up for what I did last night. And that's that, 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 you know, process that I guess I would kind of get into. And I don't think it's just me because I hear so many women talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super common. It's definitely not just you. I engaged in that kind of behavior when I was in college and grad school. So I think it's, um, it's, and there's benefit to knowing approximately what your calorie needs are, especially if you're somebody who's active, because sometimes our appetites are not enough to really drive the amount of food intake that we need to meet our calorie needs. Um, especially if you're under a lot of stress or if you've had a history of dieting, a lot of times that can jack up your appetite and satiety signaling. It's worth doing work to, to re, um, to re I don't know if it's like recalibrate, I guess it's a recalibration of the actual mechanisms in your body with appetite Mm -hmm. and satiety. And then it's also recalibrating your mindset around appetite Mm -hmm. and satiety because so many women think being hungry is a good thing. They think being full is a bad thing. And so it's, it's again, kind of this combination of objectively you, you do screw up your appetite signals when you diet too much and those Mm -hmm. need to be fixed and you also start ignoring appetite signaling and thinking hunger is good, fullness is bad, and then that affects your food choices as well. So, mm-hmm. and, and my feeling is because I'm not, I'm not like any, I'm not in any strong camp when it comes to nutritional philosophy. I do think knowing approximately what your caloric intake and your needs are can be helpful. Um, I don't personally track my calories. I've done it before, and I can kind of like guesstimate what I'm eating, um, throughout the day, but I definitely eat when I'm hungry. I stop when I'm full. I don't worry about if I'm hungry before bed, I'm, I'm not thinking, Oh, I already ate enough. I'm just going to go to bed hungry because Mm. I, I don't sleep well when I'm going to bed hungry. So I have a different mindset around the whole calories thing because I'm, I tend to be active. It's been a little weird with (laughs) the way our lives have been affected by things right um, at the time of this recording. Um, But normally I'm very active and I know that on the days that I'm active, I probably need closer to like 2,500 calories to meet my needs. And sometimes, you know, I get busy, I get distracted. I'm maybe not um, feeling super hungry, but if I know that I need about that many calories, I can make decisions around what kind of plate I'm going to put together. Should I have a snack? Like that kind of thing can come from just knowing what my calorie needs are. And on top of that, listening to my appetite. So if I am hungry, I don't question it. I don't, you know, put off eating because I think, Oh, I've already eaten enough today. So I'm not going to eat more. So it's kind of a, it's a two pronged approach that uses both my understanding of physiology and calorie needs and, you know, being athletic and needing to fuel my workouts and also getting into more of that intuitive eating mindset of I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and not question or um, ignore hunger or think that hunger is bad. Um, Sometimes I'll question why am I feeling hungry? And I might look back at what I ate and say, Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't eat enough protein today. Or, um, you know, I, I skipped breakfast. So, you know, I can kind of understand why my body would be more hungry than usual. But I don't, I don't deny the hunger or um, have any sort of negative 
mm-hmm. uh, self-talk about the hunger. It's more just like, okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat. Let me think about was there something I did earlier today that might have made me more hungry than usual? And what might I do tomorrow to, to keep my blood sugar steady and keep my energy up and not need to be eating as much throughout the day or snacking? Um, mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with snacking, but I personally prefer to just eat three meals, maybe one snack during the day or maybe like a bedtime snack. And if I find myself being hungry all day, that's not normal for me. And so then I'll use that as data to say, you know, maybe I needed to eat a little differently or maybe I had too much sugar and that was messing my blood sugar up. So I really like to empower people to look at information data, you know, look at the the number if they're going to track the calories. It's okay to see a number on the scale. It's okay to... Um, you know, log your food or log your workouts if you like to track that kind of stuff. But knowing that you don't have to do that and knowing that the goal is not to, you know, restrict or overexercise or, you know, do all the things that create health problems if you are going to use those tools. So um, I just, it's, I do find that people tend to get a little afraid of metrics mm-hmm. if they've gone through a, a um, situation where they were under eating or overexercising or dealing with disordered thinking around food. Right. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, that data is just data and we can either use it as a tool to help us be healthier or use it as a reason to cause harm to our bodies. So, um, I just, I want my, anyone that's listening and especially my clients to understand how to take both data and intuition and combine them so that they can be at their healthiest. Now, what about when there there are people that that you work with who clearly want and for their health should lose some weight? You know, they're they're obese. It's affecting their health in that way, and their intuition is a little broken around food. Um, you know, whether it be because for whatever reason, um, maybe the foods they crave are the ones that don't benefit their health more like pizza or hamburgers or whatever. And so for them to hear, you know, intuitive eating and things, they're like, there's no way, like, I can't trust my intuition. So what do you, how do you help those people move towards this mindset of themselves and about the food that they have and the relationship they have with food around them? when they do need to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, um, you know, I think in general, our food environment is really challenging compared Mm -hmm. to food environments of other cultures or other countries. Um, Unfortunately, the processed food that is created in this country is food that drives overeating. Mm -hmm. It's well known that um, these food companies employ scientists, food scientists that create combinations of ingredients and flavors in the processed food that they're creating that turns on your brain to desire more of it. It's actually a term called craveability. Things like, you know, um, Doritos or something might be, uh, I don't, I don't eat Doritos. I actually think they're kind of gross, but (laughs) I'm sure there's people out there that like Doritos or Oreos is another example of one that I have friends that are, that love Oreos. And I'm just like, um, but anyway, what I was going to say is that those foods have been designed to really hijack our appetite and to mm-hmm. cause us to eat more than maybe what our bodies need. Um, it's kind of that old example of saying that there's always room for dessert. There's right. always room. There's always room for hyper palatable food because our brains are wired to want that kind of like combination, sugar, fat, salt, 
crunchy, mm-hmm. sweet, like all the different flavors that you can think of of something being really delicious, that will override our appetite mechanism. And I think that's really important to understand because I think a lot of people out there feel guilty that somehow they lack self-control or that there's something inherently wrong with them, that they Mm -hmm. overeat on those foods. And I think it's helpful to understand that overeating on those foods is actually totally normal. It's, It's very difficult to not overeat on those foods and that one step could be to limit those types of hyper palatable foods from our diet to help make it easier for us to pay attention to our appetite and satiety. Now, a lot of times that means focusing on more whole foods. Um, I say real food. I feel like I give a little air quotes on real food because it's not like that other stuff is not technically food. It's just not the most nutrient dense um, whole food sourced food to be eating. The more we stick to whole foods like, you know, fresh produce, meats, eggs, um, fruits, that kind of thing, the stuff that's like straight out of the ground, single ingredient, it is more difficult to overeat. And it's also easier to pay attention to appetite and satiety when we're eating the foods that are closer to nature. So I like to use that as an as a way to help rebuild a normal appetite satiety functioning because we're not fighting biology to say, Oh, well, I'm technically, I've had enough calories, but this food is driving me to eat more. And it's also really important to be taking a nutrient density perspective because if we're malnourished in micronutrients like vitamins and minerals, mm-hmm. we're going to want more food. We're going to be craving more food and it's going to be um, something that our bodies are still seeking out food, even if we've yeah. technically had enough calories. So if somebody truly is struggling with overeating, a lot of times what I'll help them do is focus more on filling up on the more nutrient dense foods that will meet their micronutrient needs, their vitamin mineral needs, um, get enough protein and fat to keep their blood sugar steady. And once they've gotten their diet really filled with those good quality foods, if they want to have something as a treat, they're not going to be as reactive to overeating on that because they've already fully nourished themselves using the higher quality foods. So it's not about 100% avoidance of things like sugar or processed foods. I don't avoid sugar. I don't avoid processed foods 100%. But I personally really focus on filling up on you know, a plate that's got meat and vegetables and some kind of like real food starch and a healthy fat so that if I do want to eat something like ice cream or dessert or something like that at the end of the day, I'm not starving of total calories or total nutrients. And I can really use my appetite and satiety systems much more effectively with that enjoyment food. So it's, Mm -hmm. I think so many people are so focused on elimination and removal and avoidance and restriction. And that's very stressful on our bodies. Mm -hmm. And it eventually will cause health problems if you're constantly focused on minimizing total food intake. So if we can focus on maximizing good quality food intake, and then leaving space for enjoyment food, if we want it, that tends to work a lot better for people and it's more um, mentally healthy as well as more physically healthy for the person as well. Right. What are your, your personal top five favorite nutrient dense foods? Hmm. So if I was thinking about getting a lot of nutrients in a small package, um, I definitely look at eggs with the yolks 
yeah. as being nutrient dense. Um, one food that I guess favorite is an interesting term because I don't like this particular food, but if I had to think of like the most nutrient dense food on the planet, this would be it. So that would be liver. Um, <laughs> I love it. Definitely not, definitely not something I eat a lot of, and I could probably stand to eat more of it from a health perspective, but it is, um, like if I really wanted to maximize nutrient density, I would be eating liver more often. Um, I would look at, uh, dark colored vegetables and fruits, really. I guess that might be technically two different types of foods, but things like, um, dark leafy greens or cruciferous vegetables and then colorful fruits like berries, um, citrus fruits, that kind of thing. Anything that's got a lot of color is going to have a lot of nutrients in it. Um, and, uh, phytochemicals, antioxidants, that kind of thing. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that stands out. Cause I, I really look at the diet as a collection of nutrients that all work together. And there aren't other than eggs, like I said, eggs are kind of one of those foods that other than vitamin C, they have every single nutrient in them. Um, and so they actually are very, very nutrient dense when it comes to the variety of nutrients, but you can't get all your nutrients from eggs, right? So you have to be eating plant foods. You have to be eating even starches. There's um, things like potatoes that everybody thinks are bad for you. Potatoes are actually very nutrient dense. There's minerals and B vitamins in them. And they're, they're actually, there's a lot of good stuff that are in potatoes that make them actually a healthy food. So it's difficult for me to say top five, but if I was really going to emphasize, like I said, eggs and liver, um, dark, like bright colored fruits and vegetables and, um, plant-based starches. So again, those potatoes, sweet potatoes, maybe yeah. legumes. If somebody tolerates legumes, like lentils are a great one. Um, those are what I tend to make the bulk of my diet based on. And then, um, if you tolerate dairy, dairy can be a great source of vitamins and mer- minerals as well and healthy fats. And so, um, it's, really just the mix of animal and plant foods and then eating kind of that more nose to tail, um, eating the skin on the chicken, eating, um, the fattier cuts of, um, beef and that kind of thing. So you're not just eating chicken breasts all the time. Um, cause chicken breasts are like the least nutrient dense part of the chicken. So, uh, so it's really, really, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, they're good. They're a good source of protein. And obviously there's, mm-hmm. um, there are some vitamins and minerals in them, but mm-hmm. they're also, they're not super balanced when it comes to amino acids. Um, hmm. I much prefer somebody to have the skin on their chicken if they like yeah. the skin. Not everybody likes the skin, which I do not understand because I love chicken skin. Oh, but when it's um, crispy, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so skinless chicken breasts are like just a chunk of protein. They really don't have a ton of um, other beneficial things in them that can be helpful for gut health and hormone health and everything that our body needs to function. So it it does tend to look more like a paleo diet when I think about what are the most micronutrient and just generally nutrient dense foods. But it's also, again, not focused on eliminating things and avoiding things like, you know, worrying about five grams of sugar in your ketchup kind of thing. Um, It's more about, you know, what, what's the meat you're eating where are the fats coming from? Are you getting a nice diversity of plant foods? Are you getting starches, which even something like white rice, which is not 
nutrient dense at all, I still look at that as a good quality food for somebody who needs easily digestible carbohydrate. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to have a ton of vitamins and minerals. We just don't want our diet to be focused on low nutrient density foods because that's where we start to experience health problems. Um, especially women will experience fertility challenges if they're micronutrient deficient. Um, eventually that'll affect your energy. It may affect your body composition because, um, you end up eating more total food to get the micronutrients you need if you're eating more, um, processed foods. So it is, it's more of a full picture. And then I look at something like, um, you know, ice cream or, um, you know, any of those sugary foods that like, I just mentioned ice cream because I love ice cream, but I look at that as an extra. I don't look at that as something that's providing a ton of nutrition to me, but I enjoy it. And so I make space for it in my diet and it's totally fine. It doesn't hurt my health. So, um, that's how I look at food is get, get the bulk of your diet from stuff that's going to supply your body what it needs and keep your blood sugar steady, keep your energy up, um, keep your digestive health happy. And then if you have space for some treats, awesome. Eat the treats that you like and that don't negatively impact your health. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about, a little bit ago about there's kind of this recalibration. So a recalibration of getting our body used to these changes and then the mindset changes that go with it as well. How long do you think that process can take? It depends on where the person's coming from. So if somebody's generally healthy, but just wants to boost things a little bit, you can see improvements within days. I mean, I notice personally, if I get into a routine of, um, not eating the best quality foods, like, you know, if I'm just eating a lot of takeout or um, more sugar, because I I mentioned sugar, because too much sugar definitely screws up people's blood sugar control, and different people are sensitive in different ways. If my blood sugar gets messed up, I feel like garbage. So if I'm not eating well, if I'm eating a lot of sugar or not eating enough protein, it does not take it could take hours for me to start not feeling well. And if I Mm -hmm switch gears and I start eating my normal balanced plate and not overdoing the sugar and not overdoing the caffeine, I should feel better within, again, a couple hours. Um, if somebody's coming from a more health impaired state, it may take longer for them to really see the results. Um, you should start to see results within a few days, whether that's you're sleeping better, your energy's better, your digestion feels better. Um, you know, your mental health just feels a little bit more um, stable because, again, blood sugar is going to affect our mood. It's going to affect our cognitive functioning. Um, you know, we've all heard the term hangry. If your blood sugar is all over the place, a lot of times your mood's going to get in- affected by that. So those are some things you may see change right away. And then mm-hmm. certain things like hormonal functioning, um, body composition, like total body fat, total mus- muscle um, mass, those are going to take longer usually somewhere in like the three to six month mark to start seeing substantial changes there. Um, As an example, for premenopausal women who are menstruating, it takes about three months for uh, the egg that's going to be released for a cycle to mature. So anything you're doing today is going to mostly affect your menstrual cycle three months from now. So if you're tracking hormonal changes, I always say give it at least three months. If you're tracking gut health changes, I'd say give it a couple weeks. And if you're ch- tracking things like blood sugar, um, energy, that kind of thing, those are some things that can change within days. 
or even hours. Like I said, if you, mm-hmm. you uh, switch over to a more blood sugar controlling um, meal plan, you could literally feel better after your next meal. Right. So do you actually have your clients track their blood sugar, like get one of the like a blood sugar monitor? And, yeah. Um, sometimes that that tends to be a little bit more of an advanced technique. Uh-huh. I personally don't like taking blood. <laughs> like I don't like getting my blood drawn. I don't like the finger stick thing. So right. so unless somebody really needs to know what those numbers are, I don't necessarily go to that level. Um, if somebody's had blood sugar issues, like if they've gotten their blood drawn and they've noticed their blood sugar fasting is really low or really high and they want to see how food is affecting them, then that can be a useful tool. Honestly, it's kind of, I look at it kind of like I look at, um, calorie tracking. I don't like calorie tracking. I find it really annoying like to do on a long-term basis, but it's information that can help guide decisions. So if somebody has blood sugar issues that are not resolving from a general balanced, approach to food, exercise, stress management, sleep habits, all the things that affect blood sugar, then tracking and seeing how different foods affect that or uh, seeing how a supplement a supplement might change your fasting blood sugar over the course of a couple weeks, that can be helpful. So it's it's not something I recommend everybody do, but it's certainly a useful tool if necessary. So what I have so many questions. I know we've already gone over our time. But what are the, how would someone know if it's their blood sugar that's being affected after they eat something? Like what are the symptoms they would feel? So usually we're not going to get into really severe blood sugar issues. If somebody's having like, like if they're passing out because their blood sugar is so low, that's a much different situation than what I'm going to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Cause a lot of times that's more related to issues like diabetes or, um, you know, severe hyporeactive, I'm sorry, hypo bleh, reactive hypoglycemia. Sorry. It's <laughs> Monday morning. I, I need to get my words together. Um, so if you have really bad reactive hypoglycemia, you're going to have much more severe symptoms. The average person who just is having blood sugar dysregulation may feel uh, fatigue. They may feel lightheaded. They may feel, um, I, I get cold if my blood sugar goes too low or it gets weird. Like I'll just get like mm-hmm. cold hands and feet. Um, they may feel like their mood changes again, that hangry type mm-hmm. of feeling where all of a sudden your patience is very low. Um, or you're snapping at people that you're like, why am I getting so angry about something small. Um, so if you feel like your mood is not well controlled, that can be a blood sugar issue. Um, Hmm. obviously hunger, if you're feeling hungry, especially right after eating, that can be a sign that your, your meal did not support healthy blood sugar. Um, trying to think. So I said fatigue, I said mood changes, I said hunger, um, shakiness or dizziness, um, anything that's kind of affecting your, um, just equilibrium in your head kind of thing. If you feel like you're just not feeling super stable. Um, if you're working out, it can be a term called bonking, which basically just means you run out of energy and all of a sudden your muscles feel really jello-y when you're trying to do the, do your workout. Um, sometimes if it gets more severe, you can start to have like tunnel vision or, or almost like loss of like, you know, normal vision, that's a more severe reaction. And certainly if somebody was like passing out, that would be a much more significant problem, but that'll happen to me sometimes if I 
don't have enough food for the day or if I had too much caffeine and my blood sugar is all over the place. Sometimes if I get up off a chair, I'll get like a little bit of that tunnel vision or feel a little lightheaded. That right. can be a sign of blood sugar issues as well. Um, there's lots of other things that can happen. I mean, blood sugar affects so many different areas of our health, especially as women. It can affect our uh, menstrual cycle. It can affect our um, our, our sleep and how well we're able to fall asleep and stay asleep. Um, and that'll happen to men too. Obviously they don't have the menstrual cycle to track, but, um, but insomnia is a very common, um, symptom of blood sugar dysregulation. So, um, peeing a lot overnight. So if you're getting up more than once to pee overnight, that's a lot of times related to blood sugar dysregulation and even getting up once to pee, is something that can be an um, indicator of blood sugar issues because really we shouldn't be waking up to pee at all overnight. Um, so these are just some things that people can be paying attention to that can indicate poor blood sugar control. And the best way to really make sure that it is blood sugar is by, um, like you said, you could track it, you could test it using a monitor, or you can play around with the macronutrient composition of your meals. Maybe try to get some extra protein, some extra fiber from vegetables, um, more fat. If you're avoiding fat for whatever reason, maybe add a little extra fat or use a fattier type of protein. Um, look at your carb intake and look at, you know, is that enough? Um, there's, there's an amount of carbs that I call, and I, I'm kind of going all over the place right now, but there's so much that I could answer with that question. Um, there's a no man's land of carb intake that I tell my clients about that you're eating too many carbs to really be in ketosis, but you're not e eating enough carbs to really supply your body the blood sugar that you need. So what happens hmm. is your body ends up needing to kick into something called gluconeogenesis, which mm -hmm. relies on stress hormones to actually make that process happen. And so you end up getting a lot of these uh, stress hormone type symptoms of like anxiety or weird energy changes, either a drop in energy or a high level of energy. Um, again, the mood changes, that kind of stuff can happen because your body is not getting enough total carbs, even if it's getting enough calories. So there's a lot of different things that play into blood sugar control. Everybody's different. Some people do better with low carb. Some people do better with higher carb. And it's really up to the individual to, to determine what is your appropriate balance of protein, carbs, and fat to have good blood sugar control. But it is something worth figuring out because if your blood sugar is not well controlled, it can cause a lot of different health problems, um, whether that's from too low blood sugar, creating things like hormonal disruptions, gut health issues, sleep issues, energy issues, or on the other end of the extreme where you have very high blood sugar all the time, that causes things like um, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, un, un, um, anticipated weight gain, um, you know, all the metabolic risks that come along with chronic high insulin, like, you know, higher risk for cancer, higher risk for um, cognitive decline, lots of different things that can come from chronic high blood sugar as well. So blood sugar control yeah. is a really important thing for everybody. And whether yeah. that means getting it to come up or getting it to come down, um, we need to make sure that we're eating and, and living in a way that keeps our blood sugar as steady as possible, while also understanding that having some fluctuation across the day, which is really that getting a little hungry, then feeling full after you eat, that general fluctuation across the day is totally fine. You just don't want to be having really low, really high, or really big ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And how do people bring it down if it's too high consistently? 
Well, that does depend on what the person's doing that's causing blood sugar to be high mm-hmm. because um, not all high blood sugar is caused by eating too many calories or eating too many carbs. But usually we want to look at total calorie intake, total macronutrient balance. Um, usually the total calorie intake is actually a more significant issue than macronutrient balance. So if somebody's chronically overeating too many calories, their body has to really become insulin um, resistant to prevent overconsumption of calories from damaging their cells. So this is where we get into a little bit more of like the biochemistry understanding. But overeating total calories is a very common cause of chronic high blood sugar. Um, Eating a lot of sugar, you still need to be in a calorie surplus to really have that cause chronic high blood sugar. Um, But higher levels of inflammation, high levels of stress, not Mm -hmm. sleeping enough, um, uh, binge and restrict cycles. Those can all cause us to be, become insulin resistant and really improving insulin sensitivity, bringing down inflammation, improving, um, you know, lifestyle habits, keeping your stress levels Mm -hmm. low, getting appropriate amounts of exercise because too little or too much exercise can create insulin resistance. Um, so we just, it's, it's really, like I said, dependent on where the person's coming from and why their blood sugar is high, but we want them to really emphasize again, a balanced diet, appropriate amount of calories, not way too high, way too low, um, appropriate amount of exercise, general movement throughout the day. So not sitting the entire day, but also not, you know, running ultra marathons, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, managing stress to a point where, Again, we can't 100% avoid it, but you're not letting stress be something that is getting out of control all the time. So those would be the main things I would focus on. And then there's a lot of different micronutrients and fatty acids and different things that can help with blood sugar control as well. And that that gets into a little bit more of that like functional medicine and nutrition therapy that mm-hmm. 100% individualized to the person that needs to improve their health. Right, right. But you know, that... that- even just that last part of eating the whole foods, eating a balanced diet, managing your stress levels, that's something that is repetitive over many different issues that that people have or, or deal with. Well, Laura, where can people find more about everything you do and follow you, read your articles, you have a podcast, tell us more about where, where our people can go find you. Yeah. So everything is at my website, which is lauraschoenfeldrd.com. Um, that's where my podcast is hosted as well. My podcast is called the Fed and Fearless podcast. Um, and the podcast is really for, it's primarily aimed at women. I mean, certainly men can listen as well, but it's mostly for women who want to understand how to improve their health without it turning into this, um, you know, negative self-talk driven type Mm -hmm. um, lifestyle change where they're beating themselves up all the time or they're afraid of foods. Like my goal is to help people understand how to maximize their health and also to stay mentally and emotionally healthy Mm -hmm. as well, not to let their focus on their diet eclipse the other things that are important to them. So that's really Mm -hmm. what the podcast focus on. And then as far as social media is concerned, my most active social media account is Instagram. That's at Laura Schoenfeld RD. And then I do have a free Facebook group for women called the Fed and Frail Society. If you'd like to join that, um, that's something that I 
um, I like to post things that I'm reading or articles that I've done or podcasts that I've done in that group to just help people stay up to date on the, uh, the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And you have a few different types of courses that people can find on your website as well. I've gone through two of them and they both have been great. And you also do coaching for women as well, where you can get, like you were saying, you know, some people need that a hundred percent individualized approach for them. And so you would be a great option because I love your level headedness, the way that you approach it. And even the, you know, you always come back to, you are fearlessly and wonderfully made and are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And you just keep that as just so much of the center of what you do, which is beautiful. And I love that you bring that back. Even when, even though I am a Christian, um, it's amazing how much I never thought of that or I would never think of that Mm -hmm. in any of my endeavors to lose weight or be healthy. It was just always very inward focused and, and realizing that we're created for a purpose and then an image of a God who loves us unconditionally. Um, I think it can be hard to swallow sometimes and believe, but it is true. So thank you for including that in your message. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's the most important thing that's helped me get balance in my own life. So whenever I have clients who have that same belief, it's something that can really um, make a huge impact on their ability to be successful with the work that we do. Mm, That's awesome. Well, thank you, Laura, for all of your time with us today. It's been awesome talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. It was a pleasure. So here are my key pies takeaways from our discussion today with Laura Schoenfeld. In fact, this week, the key pies takeaways aren't going to be bullet points so much as they are going to be questions that I really want you to sit down and consider. The first question is this, are you actually healthy? Take away looking at the number on the scale and focus on your health. Are you experiencing hormonal issues, especially if you're a woman? And if you're a cycling woman, have you noticed changes in your menstrual cycle that aren't normal and that aren't healthy, like missing periods, going way long between your cycles, or maybe having cycles too frequently? And even for men and women, how are you feeling on a day-to-day basis? Again, Don't focus on the number on the scale. Focus on how you're feeling, how you're performing on a day-to-day basis, how your sleep is. Focus on these other things. Are you experiencing never-ending stress? Are you struggling with losing that number on the scale and feel like you've hit a plateau, but you don't know what else you can do? You feel like if you take any more calories out of your diet, you might starve to death and you may not lose weight in the middle of it. If you're feeling these ways, then these are all signs that your body may not be handling what you're doing to it very well, especially if you're under eating, which leads me to the second question that I want you to ponder this week. What are the areas that we talked about on this podcast today that you reacted to? Maybe there were some things that you heard and you thought, no way. Or maybe there's some things that you heard and you thought, I would love for that to be true. 
If there were any specific feelings you had around any of the things that Laura and I discussed, then I want to encourage you to dive deeper into that. I shared in the podcast that for me, when I first read one of Laura's articles that talked about how I might be under eating, I thought there's no way. But there was another part of me that thought, gosh, I hope that's true. Like, just tell me that I'm under eating because my body was hungry. But I kept just focusing on trying to limit myself to a certain number of calories each day, which according to mainstream focus should have been between 1500 or 1800 calories for me, for my body weight, for my height, all those things. And that should have been enough. But after going through this process and reading that article and diving into the things that Laura did, I realized that really I should be eating way more than that. And that terrified me. To think that I should be eating more, all I could think about was the number on the scale might go up and I wasn't even considering how it might heal the things in my body that needed to be healed. So after going through this process and even looking at how it was affecting my own health, I lost my period. I was struggling with stress and anxiety and all of these things. And I wasn't healthy, even though on paper, it looked like I was healthy. It looked like I was eating enough calories, all of those things. And it wasn't until I broke a lot of that mental struggle, a lot of the anxiety that I was putting on myself and what I was eating and even let myself eat more than I thought that I should that I started seeing my body start to heal. My body is still healing two years later from what I put it through when I was just trying to chase a number on a scale. Of course, I don't recommend that you should throw caution to the wind and just start doing whatever you want to do. You should take this into consideration. I'm simply asking you to investigate how these things make you feel. And if you notice a fear or an apprehension around certain parts of what you've heard, one of the things we discussed, ask yourself, why? Why is there fear around that? Why is there apprehension? What is that leading to deeper in your life? Which leads to the third and final takeaway from today's episode, which is to find a healthcare provider, a licensed professional, whatever that might look like, to walk with you through this journey. Don't just trust what you find on the internet, or dear God, please don't trust what you see someone say to you on Facebook. Find someone who knows what they're talking about, who can help you reach the goals that you have for yourself and feel better. I would encourage you to find someone you trust and someone who knows what they're talking about, someone that you have a good relationship with, that you feel like you can talk to, and that you jive well with. Those are the people you need to have on your team as you are trying to pursue and reach the health goals that you have for yourself. Even with what we talked about on the podcast today with Laura, you need to understand that what we talked about may not work for you. And that is why you have that need to find that bio-individual support and feedback from a professional in the field. What we have talked about on today's show are simply guidelines and tips and things for you to consider, but I encourage you to take control of your own health and go to someone who can actually give you medical advice and follow their protocols. Make sure it's someone you trust. So as a recap, ask yourself these questions. Am I actually healthy? 
What are the things that I am reacting to, whether in a positive or a negative way that I have heard? Am I believing certain things about how much I should eat or what I should eat or how I should react to the number on a scale based on false beliefs, based on things that aren't actually healthy or good for me? And do I need to dive deeper and actually sit and think about why I believe the things that I do? Is there something more there? And then third of all, how can I take control of my own health starting now? These are the key pies takeaways from this episode with Laura Schoenfeld. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well. You can always find out more information by going to itstartswithattraction.com for show notes, for updates, and to join the email list so that every Friday you can get an encouraging email that specifically tells you what you can do to work on your pies so that you can become the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Until next week, keep working on your pies and stay strong.